Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers, and thanks for joining us in this episode of The Stages Podcast. Today's guest first entered my consciousness as the ruthless Louise Carter in the television series Skyways. The sight of her regally descending the escalators in the opening credits of the show, while she surveyed her airport domain with striking sensuality and superior command, left an indelible image from my early viewing of Australian TV. Such is the illuminating presence of Tina Bursell, an actor who has populated our television screens and stages, delivering vivid interpretation to a succession of engaging, strong and independent women. This year, she celebrates a couple of milestones, 50 years as an actor and a birthday of some significance. In fact, it's Tina's birthday today. Happy birthday, Tina. And what better way to mark those occasions than with a return to the stage to play Madame in the musical Cinderella. Widely known for her role as Meryl in Channel 9's series Doctor Doctor, Tina began her career in reviews and political satire and has performed on stage for theatre companies across the nation. No stranger to musical theatre either, she was in the cast of Harry M. Miller's premiere production of Grease and has also sung and danced away through productions of Godspell and Manning Clark's A History of Australia, the musical. It was a treat to record this episode with Tina. We charted her extensive career, rejoiced in her return to the musical stage and celebrated her approaching birthday. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. It's a while yet, but, well, a minute. Aren't you, um... Hang on. I have that very same light as yours. I'm just going to get the... What? The same light. I'm going to get, um... Just so I can buy at the time. And I'm going to, um... Put on the airplane mode, too. Right. <clears throat> oh, oh, it's up. already on, love. You just... No. This is very exciting, That's I have to say. You're excited? I, did, yes, I, I, I even made notes for myself in case, but I have a feeling we'll just be running on... Um, Why would you need notes? Oh, well, I, because I've discovered in the last... Because no one I, in conversation... When you've got a, um, a body of work and, and a bunch of friends that you've known all your life, they're not going to ask you... They don't ask you questions. Mm. Well, not regularly, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, it's usually a trigger that inspires somebody to say, yes, what happened? Were you in that? Such as we were having when I first arrived here about the yeah. programs. Yeah. They're triggers. So because of the upcoming work and because I've been, you know, dragged out and about to going and doing various interviews... <laughs> I'm finding a, a great joy in uh, revisiting my past 
if you like, and the, how I got here mm. and how I'm still going. So it's been quite wonderful and uh, just things. So I made, yes, I did. I made a little trigger and I thought, that, oh, I was in that. I'd forgotten, you know, that I was in a um, tomfoolery, for instance. I couldn't remember I'd done that. And I uh, thought, oh, of course, and why did I love it? Yeah, so. Well, it's been a lovely trajectory anyway, hasn't it? Have you, have you had great lengths of time where there was no work? I had great lengths of time where I had no work was when my mother was unwell. And, uh, and that was when she was early diagnosed with dementia. And that particular time was um, and wasn't by choice I was not working or I I did do a TV show down in Melbourne called Time of Our Lives which was fraught with a character that was in great turmoil and within alcoholic various things so flying to Melbourne and my mother starting to show clear signs of vascular dementia which were becoming distressing for my father I found it was what am I doing in Melbourne, why am I torturing myself in the best possible way with a wonderful, wonderful character that I was playing? But it seemed to me, well, I might just need to be at home more. So, but it wasn't a choice. Work was not coming to me. Right. Curiously, yeah. it was so. My time was spent travelling up and down the M5 in my little red Barina, a great fuel saver, and visiting my parents, and then assisting with dad uh, dad with my mother just as she was progressing so that was a few years but I did take a couple of little jobs I mean I used to work in a bed and breakfast and I used to work in the mornings I clean clean rooms get them ready for the uh, the new people coming in in the afternoons so much so that I ended up actually running that place for about six weeks which was fabulous I had to learn how to use every every computer known to man because I was using you know receiving bookings and stuff from overseas money and things and I got to know the people very very well and I ran a house with you know literally 10 guests writers all sorts of people flying in from around the world and then I worked in a pet shop and uh, and mum and dad would come and visit me because we, dad would drive up and I got to know those people very well as, and I got to know every dog in the whole of the eastern suburbs. All of those things were allowing me because underlying everything, whether I was choosing to work or not, in this instance I wasn't working really, um, I had a mortgage. Mm. And so with that mortgage, whatever motivated me to earn some money, I did it and they were the jobs that I had at that time. And then it wasn't until my father <clears throat> contracted bowel cancer and I knew I had to be there to help him uh, recover because mum was not far gone or she was just showing signs. So I spent time then. So I was spending more time. Even though I was based in Sydney, I was spending more time. And uh, it wasn't until, uh, so to answer your question, no, there was there wasn't work because of a set of circumstances and um, I've always been resourceful. I will always go and get a job. I need to pay my mortgage and that's what I do. Perhaps that's, that was the gods of the theatre or, or the universe sort of giving you time out for a while so that you could attend to those daughterly duties. I guess. Uh, well, yes, I, I, that's probably the way I would have said it to myself, actually. <laughs> I, I certainly wasn't miserable. Um, it just really they were the circumstances Mm. and I was very happy as long as I was earning money to 
as minimal as it was, it enabled me to maintain my fiscal responsibilities at mm. that time. Do you have siblings? No. So I'm an only child mm. and family's, you know, really important to me. And family doesn't necessarily have to be bloodline. No. But family's very important to me. I love to feel connected. I'm, I might be an only child and I used to live in my room at home as a kid uh, rich with with imagination and um, building cubby holes and you know mum used to say I was the only child in her friends group that you'd have to knock on the door and say teen teen come on you know come on out I was I'd always I could you know time hours would slip away with me I'd always find something and then of course as an adolescent you know I had the old AWA portable radiogram in my room my 33 and a third and I've been playing that <laughs> listening to the music so do you think of being an only child has helped you forge that imagination which uh, led you into the, the career that you have I think it's a combination of things oh. um, I think I was uh, encouraged uh, because uh, through my mother my mum was a beacon of, of great joy uh, for life, a great zest for living. Whatever was under, underlying her um, life as a young woman had a lot to do with missed opportunities. She had a beautiful uh, singing voice. She was to go to London and study a coloratura soprano. Um, she was to go and do that. And her mother was ill and she she decided not to go. I think probably in those days to go over to London was a long, long way. Mm. And my mum... uh, So my mum was a very um, vibrant, bohemian style of woman. She was a great painter, a great artist. My story, Bedtime at Night, Bedtime Stories, was a sketchbook and a pen or a pencil. And she would illustrate my bedtime stories. And I remember them so well because they were always mushroom tops with little little doors and little creatures going in and out. So it was not a conventional way of bedtime story, but they were illustrations. Mum was always singing. We were always singing. Um, and our greatest one in the car, and for any timid passenger, was um, You Are My Sunshine. And we'd do that in rounds and occasionally in full part harmony. <laughs> Brilliant. It was, uh, and even Dad, music was always playing. And um, I most recently said to somebody that um, I think it was inevitable that the music and rhythm and whatever else was coursing through my veins because Mum, I was still in situ before this is before I was born, and she was singing Gounod's Ave Maria at St Mary's Cathedral. So, and then you know, within the first twelve months of my life, um, the bassinet was in the middle of the lounge room floor, and. Um, those what were those ripple soul shoes, uh, creepers, or you know people jitterbugging to Bill Haley and the Comet, you know rock around the clock. So it was ingrained in me, and I was nothing was, nothing was stopped. Nothing was so. Mum was always come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. Curiously, despite my career, I, I guess Mum was Mum was encouraging me, and probably lived her miss missed career through me in lots of ways and so she and dad would just battle like crazy over my father wanted me to do a typing course I did oblige I cheated the whole way anything to get that certificate to keep him quiet at the Williams Business College and um, 
60 words a minute. Get something to fall back on. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Fruit on the sideboard. And Dad wanted me to be a travel agent so I could travel the world because he'd travelled the world. as a, He was at sea in the Merchant Marines all those year, for all those years. And he always said, the world, the world, you, you know, savour it, feel it, smell it. And Mum, of course, was painting, drawing, dressings up, taking me to the theatre. And um, in amongst all of this, I was so shy, so incredibly shy. So... I've often reflected on that as my mum, I think, I look for that in other people. I, I, I'm a leader. I, I like to follow, I think, a path that's usually what I see as more vibrant. I enjoy, uh, same with music, you know, I like to venture off. I like to, to explore and see what's on the other side. So if there are people in that arena, I tend to follow are you uh, into astrology? I was there for a while. In fact, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> I was throwing the runes. I was into the cards. And uh, because mum had this sixth sense of some sort, she'd often, you know, give her a few wines. And people loved coming to our, our place all the time. We lived in a flat in North Sydney, mm. tiny little flat. But we had a big backyard. We always had barbecues. It was always... People were always wanting to knock on the door and come to the bursals. The room, you know, mum had red and gold wallpaper. It was colourful and there was always music playing. And when mum would sit on the lounge and <laughs> some poor young person would be seeking her wisdom, she'd hold their hand and she could just tell them, really, their future. That was extraordinary. She had an amazing <laughs> gift. Now, for me, it was always the cards and the this and the that. She always used to say to me, just sit still, be in yourself, it'll come. Just think about it. <sighs> I was always looking for the um, external things. I became quite obsessed by it. So the thing is, I don't now. No. No. I'm not, no. I well, I, well, I ask because I've done a bit of homework because... You know, towards the end of July, you <laughs> celebrate a very <laughs> special birthday. I do. You've done your hard work. It is. Um, and um, uh, you're a Leo. I'm a Leo. Yes. Yes. Yes, I am a you Leo. Are, yes. That fabulous mane that you're wearing at the moment. <laughs> um, and uh, are we allowed to tell the listener how old you're turning? Of course. I'm very proud of my age. I refuse to believe it because I can't believe it. Well, I can't pick up. You have this Peter Pan personality. Oh, I think my father had the Peter Pan personality. <laughs> it's in the genes, as we all used to say, because no one believed when he was 91 or at his 90th. Everybody said, You can't be, you can't be. It's in the genes. It must be that Irish and that Scot and the French and the English blood, I think. But yes, I turned 70. The only, the only shock for me, most recently, I've got a bit of a decking issue going on with my apartment. I need to replace the deck. And a very young builder, because it's been a process of elimination, it's not happening, but a very young builder, 28, hated that. I hated it because he kept saying, well, now I don't think you should get the Merbau. And I said, but the Merbau's by the sea and it's a really good wood. No, I think you should get the Echo, the Echo deck, he said, because, look, you want it to last your lifetime, so you've got another, you know, good 40 years. And I thought, if only you knew. I'm now <laughs> counting and I'm now actually saying, I'm 70, will I have 10 years? Will I have 20 years? And what am I going to do? Eco deck or Merbau, you know, and it had come down to a plank of wood. So I had this reality check all of, you know, about 10 days ago. It is, 
you yes and I no longer I'm thinking about age I never did mm. it's just an, a number um, the only time I ever think about age is probably when people remind me if I've got a crook knee or something with stub a finger or and people say oh well you know it's you know arthritis we're not getting young I think I've never it's just never crossed my mind and now I'm thinking about my longevity how long have I got and what am I going to do with it so this is the first time so it really is it's a step that I'd not taken before my homework oh Leo, these are some of the, uh, the the traits that we associate with Leos. Let's let's see how many we can tick off. Confident? Would you say you're confident? Well, I've just told you that I was so shy <laughs> as a child. <laughs> the confidence a... has, has blossomed as uh, the decades have gone by. Well, I was always reminded that the girl who was confident in the front of the room, not necessarily was. She was probably the shyest, and she was probably trying to deflect so people wouldn't you know, uh, make a fuss of her. No one makes a fuss of a noisy wheel. Mm. Although there is an expression, noisy wheel gets the most oil. Um, The shy retiring girl in the corner is going to be the one where everybody wants to make her feel welcome. So you go figure. You're comfortable being the centre of attention? Well, I I have to be very honest here. I don't want too much attention, but I tell you what, if you don't give it, I'm really not happy, (laughs) especially around birthdays. The lioness roars. You adore drama. Adore drama, as in creating it? Well, it says drama adoring. What does that mean? Drama adoring? I don't think... Every Leo, obviously, isn't an actor, so I suppose it's to do with, you know... Creating it? Well, that's about being centre of attention, maybe. That is, really. Ambitious? Well, ambitious. I don't... uh, If ambitious means looking for the next job, and that's ambition in a healthy way to survive? Loyal? Loyal. Yeah, you're very loyal, I would say. Um, Fiercely protective of their nearest and dearest. Absolutely, yes. Generous? I, I believe. Yeah. I don't know. I I'd believe. Well, it's, it's lovely to reflect, isn't it? <laughs> People say, oh, you're just too generous. You're far too generous. I think that's just someone who's probably not had. Right. What about some wor- worse traits? Do you want to knock some of them on the head? Sure. Um, frustratingly narrow-minded. I wouldn't say that about you. No. Fixed, maybe, sometimes. I, I do. I answer to that. I often think I'm a little bit fixed in my ways. You can descend into gloomy moods? Really? Can do, but I think I wonder if that's part and parcel with being a, an actor and living a life continually being rejected. Um, I mean, you're not always rejected. You do get score the job, but rejection's quite a, a big thing in an actor's life. Yeah. And uh, But it, no sooner do I get into that state... I, I give myself about two days mm. and I'll find a way out. It might be a walk, might be a piece of music, but I'll work hard to get out of, the, out of it. I think I've told you this before, and it's a little bit of a confession, if I can confess to the listeners and, and remind you. You changed the way that I descended escalators at airports. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. <laughs> you don't remember me telling you this. No, I remember Skyways, an impressionable young mind, thinking... Who is that woman that comes down in the opening credits, so regal, 
Louise Carter. Louise Carter. There she with the music. Yeah, with the music. So every time I'm at an airport, I have to descend you an escalator. I am Louise Carter. Oh, I'm loving that so good, <laughs> especially with that strong gaze that she would have. But there was a benchmark. I mean, if you want to be Louise Carter going down an elevator, yeah. go back to the eighties. Women, you know, were not assistant managers or of airports. Mm. So you know, it was quite a shattering change really on television and, and you were 26 27 I, yeah, I was 26 yeah. 27 yeah. so you can be that too if you want next time you're at the airport <laughs> would you like that <laughs> I would love it. Ruth was 26 year old at the airport uh, Tina you're about to uh, make a triumphant return to the stage in Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella which is uh, being presented by Opera Australia and um, John Frost it's not a bad way to celebrate 50 years in the industry? It's very exciting. It's also quite a gear change from where I've been in the last, in, in, in my work. Mm. It's quite a gear change. Most recently, I've just come off five years of being in a television show. So the craft is different. And uh, I'm very, very excited. And the thrill when I hear the music, even now, when I start playing it, I get very excited. But it's a beautiful I, score. Oh, Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. It's so lyrical. It's very beautiful. And I'm keenly honest to say, you know, I, the thrill is as great as the onslaught of fear climbing back up onto a very large stage. The last stage I was on was three years ago, and it was the size of a pocket handkerchief at the Griffin Theatre Company. So it's, you know, it's massive, and there really is... It, it really is a, a, a dual step that I'm taking at the moment of one forward, one back. But one of I'm just thrilled. Mm. I re, I, who'd have thought? I, it's just, mm. Mm. I can't... But of course it's not your first foray into musical theatre. No. A lot of your career began in musicals. I wanted uh, my music, my musical career... It's because I always thought I would follow the path of being in musical theatre and uh, comedy. And... Uh, that was the desire, and uh, it's funny. I started, I was just trying to think, because I was in all the school plays, and one of the first things I ever did was HMS Pinafore, and I covered in those days. That was a big word. We didn't cover then. You just, you know, yeah, yeah, you, you can understudy. Uh, buttercup. But, uh, and I was in The Sopranos, and we did that with the Balgala Boys High, so that school, you know, that was a big thing out, and I think I had my first kiss behind the toilet block then, Probably too much information for the listeners. I am sorry, but was, uh, was it Ray Fraxhaw? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but the so the desire, as I said, was always. I was in the choir. I sang in everything. I studied music for seven years, and um, so I wasn't a stranger to music. Did you have an instrument? I did. I yeah. played the flute. Right. I also taught. Rec- I sp- uh, played recorder for five years and I taught recorder, uh, descant, and I did six years of theory in music and guitar. Um, not very good with the guitar, could have been better, lazy. Uh, the best I could do was sitting around open fires in the evenings singing Kumbaya with three chords and they were pretty monotonous really for most people the listener but and then of course I went into Peter Paul and Mary and all of those things music was just it was a it was a natural progression for me to go into that arena and uh, I think the very first thing I did away from home everything was Greece so they were big shows to go into well this is Harry Miller Harry Miller Ross Coleman Ross Coleman choreographed it 
John Frost, who's my boss in this new the show that I'm about to yeah. do, John Frost used to live in the little uh, office, the flat, which was above the office in the Metro Burke Street, and he would come down and tear tickets. So I met John at a very early stay, time in his life. Yeah. He's a year younger than me. And uh, we made had a, big, had a friendship. There was, but he was the launch pad for so many careers. As I said, Natalie Moscow was no 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 slouch. She was already there. There was, and David Atkins. He was sixteen years old. Wow. And um, oh God, we took him to a party one night. And we said we'd look after him. We said to his mum, "Don't worry, we'll look after him." And we did. It's just he saw a lot that probably he wasn't used to seeing at <laughs> one of those parties. <laughs> but Sal Girard, there was um, Denise Drysdale. Denise Drysdale. Oh God, she played Cha Cha. We had a matinee one day. I don't know if you listeners where you, where you want to hear this, but oh. we had a matinee. And we, you know, the first. First rule about theatre, you don't drink, and uh, in film, you don't, you know, snort cocaine and you don't smoke <laughs> cigarettes. But you see, in Greece on this particular day, it was a matinee, and I think, you know, cheeky. This is, and we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. And uh, they just dock your pay. They dock your pay, right. and of course, you know, in those days, but you were just so fearless, and everything was wonderful. Mm. And uh, I just remember this matinee. Oh my God, David, and uh, not David. What's his name? Downer, because uh, he used to come up to me in my character and say, "Hey, going cupcake." Anyway, we'd all had a few drinks. Why? I don't know. Wow. Denise Drysdale, Drysdale wrote on the bottom of her lip, back to front. <laughs> get fucked so sorry viewers uh, listeners and I mean we just died with laughter and trying to do those big numbers of you know um uh we go together we, and... oh we go together was that one but what was the grease lightning yeah, yeah. oh my god moving so fast um very very funny times greased at lightning we were greased at lightning but anyway we all got docked and there you go you never do it again dear, dear so it became very serious after that yeah who did you play Freddie, my Freddie. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, Marty. Marty engaged to a marine. Freddie, my love, and saying, "Freddie, my love." Yeah. Um, there was a photo of me in the Herald, at the at just standing with my backup girls and um, in my pajamas, singing my heart out. And so, "Freddie, my love" became a song that, um, in fact, somebody sent me a message when I they saw that I was in Cinderella and said, "Will you be singing Freddie, my love?" And I couldn't help. It was on Instagram. I wrote back, it's the backstory <laughs> to the character. You can take requests. <laughs> I could in the middle of the show. What was your big song in Godspell? I sang the day-by-day Day role wow. and uh, to see them all. Look, all of uh, with Paul Ream Falvey, the old Rich Book Theatre. You know, I was on the heels of... Um, Probably not a nice thing to say about myself, but I wasn't the strongest. You wouldn't see me as the strongest of singers. I took for granted a lot of things. I knew I had um, talent, and I suppose I just didn't work hard enough for lots of reasons, and uh, lazy, and uh, mm, procrastinator, as I was at school even. Tina lacks concentration. Uh, (laughs) I think having said those days, as I said, with youth, I was talking to somebody uh, the other day about turning 70, but this whole thing of youth, the, the greatest thing about that is the fearlessness, and I believed it would never run out. 
And so for me to stand up there and sing Day by Day, which was truly wonderful, on that table. But, you know, we had Colin Hewitt before me and mm. Peter DePano before that or around the same time. And it was a big, big song to do. I sang it. There's no question I sang it. I did it and I loved it. But I probably wasn't the biggest of voices. But I learned something in that time. I started to understand the importance of character and the importance of cell. Uh, I didn't do it then. Mm. I learned that later Mm. um, of how best to own something. And in fact, Colette Mann said to me, an actress uh, Melbourne and I, she directed that uh, that particular production. But she said to me, I was in the front uh, row, and we all had to do. I can't recall the step, but it was foot to the right, foot to the left, foot to the right, and together. And invariably on the beat, I go to the left, and everybody else we go to the right. And finally, she just said in the mid, she said, "Oh, for God's sake, Tina." You're in the front row. If you're going to make a mistake and you're going to, will you please own it and let everybody think everybody else is wrong but you're right. Yeah. Always own it. Yeah. Very strong words to remember and uh, I'm still remembering. Own it. <laughs> own it. Step out there and do it. Well, let's hope you don't have to own too much in Cinderella. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> She's wicked anyway, so it's, like, it's cool. <laughs> Look, a, a production which has gone out down into the, the annals of musical theatre history in Australia, which is a piece that I'm fascinated by because it's had such a, an interesting history, is Manning Clark's History of Australia, the musical. That's right. Which was done for the Bicentenary. Bicentenary in 1988, and it was John Rommel, Don Watson, who penned it, and John Robertson, I think? Tim Robertson. Tim Robertson. That was the I saw earlier. And uh, Martin Armiger, who did the music for that. And David King. And, Dave, and, oh, I and adored, George Dreyfus. David King. Yeah. I adored that man. He was so... He made it so easy for an actor. Because I still saw myself an act, as an actor that could sing. Mm. And he just had such a wonderful way f- imbue you with great confidence. Jonathan Biggins was in that. Linda Nagel was in that. Terrific cast. A Terrific wonderful cast. cast. We, we did it at Whopper. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's got some great tunes in it. It but, has. But it didn't succeed commercially, did it? Why do you think... Was it the cultural cringe people didn't want it? Oh, that was the Bicentennial. Were there too many cooks? Um, Good question. I It probably lacked... Uh, strange thing to say when it's a historian we're referring to. It probably lacked that little bit of zing... With a, as a musical, it had all the great characters, the Ned Kellys. You know, I mean, it, it had great characters in there. Yeah. I played Daniel Mannix. Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, and oh, I was just thinking, um, Mich- you, you played... Michelle Forden. Yes, God, it? Michelle yeah. Forden was yeah. absolutely beautiful as Mrs. Manning Clark. Um, did you play Kate Kelly? I did play Kate yeah. Kelly. The Rumble that didn't make it to the album, the cast album. Once again, uh, Martin Armiger had said at the time, we just didn't feel that song was strong enough to make the album. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, you did it, so... Well... And you did it after it had been... Yeah, aired. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we, our director had said it in a school classroom. So we're all students oh, at a history, in a better. history class. Maybe. And then using the, the props in the schoolroom, yes. etc., we were yes. able to enact those various aspects of history. Yeah, it was quite fun. But you, your company obviously had great belief in it because I remember reading at the time that um, you 
did it without pay for a couple of weeks we did. To, to keep it running. We did mm. in the beginning. And I remember I also did it with Barley Belly um, because <laughs> I'd just come back from Bali and I remember feeling most unwell, thinking, oh, gee whiz, this is called dedication and love for your craft. But, you know, we were so, as often with performers, uh, less so now because we've got, uh, we're unionised, but we, you know, it's nothing to you know, put yourself forward and create uh, as a group, an ensemble, to make, if you believe in it. And mm. I think Manning Clark was a great story to believe in mm. and it was appropriate at that particular time, yeah. as you say, with the bicentenary. So, you know, you're having experiences with the recorder and, and Buttercup and all that sort of thing. Are you starting to formulate an idea that you would like to be an actor then at that time? Oh, I always wanted to be an actor. Always wanted to be. An I actor. wanted to be an actor, as shy as I was, <laughs> in the lounge room at home. Uh, we always did little shows. My mother and I, for Dad, uh, we always would do little shows because she was so. Come on, let's do it. We've got a song, and she'd pop out from behind the curtains. We had curtains between the lounge room and the kitchen. And uh, that was the kitchen was the preparation area, more than food, I can tell you. <laughs> and there'd be little pop-outs. So um, I was always wanting to be an actor. The curious thing is it was just a natural f- fit for me to go into musicals. But in that time, I ended up moving into comedy because I was quite uh, political in my thinking. I was always wanting to make a change, a difference. I attempted stand-up. I had some, wanted to say something. And uh, I was also a product of the Flower Power children. You know, I'm part of the 60s, so the music, what was happening, the marches. I wagged school to march, to protest about the Vietnam War. I had mates that were older than me that were in their first year at uni, all fearful of uh, uh, being called up with conscription. They uh, encouraged and, and spurred me on to, to seek another voice, if you like. Yeah. And music was part of that too, because music, I had a great feel. I wasn't, my mother did all the show tunes. She took me through all the show stuff. She was the one that would say, it's cold, wet, rainy day. There's a good movie on the telly. I think it's, um, you know, it's a musical. Sit Stay races, home. Yes, that's it. There you go. <laughs> and all of that. Yeah. Stay home for the day. We'll have soup. And, you know, that was my education. Uh, I think, with moving into the with my music, I was starting to become. I was also sexually uh, active. I was becoming aware of so many things. So I was mixing with a lot of university students, and my interests were: uh, what can I do? How can I do this? And then I fell into political satire, and mm. I ended up going into review, which meant I could still sing, I could still dance, but I didn't have to have a great voice. And I didn't have to be a great dancer, but I could do and be. Uh, And it it appealed to me. It it, it suited me. You had a crack at NIDA, didn't you? Crack at it, absolutely. (laughs) I had a crack at NIDA. With greatest greatest (laughs) respect. But but that's the only uh, training institution for for actors in the country at the time, probably. So you would know? I I went to, there was a a teacher I knew who ended up at NIDA. Her name was Judith Conroe, who was an an actor from RADA many years ago, very glamorous. All Mm. the young men adored her. She was truly beautiful and 
Foxy fabulous and and and, and a great inspiring uh, uh, you know teachings if you've got a good teacher you follow and learn and yep. grasp new things and um, she had a drama school at the uh, Kalara Community Theatre so I'd started I used to tear tickets at the ensemble when um, Gordon Hayes was there I did class Hayes Gordon Hayes Gordon Gordon Hayes who's that that's his brother that's his brother yeah. um, <laughs> I love it I would tear tickets uh, there in the afternoons and I uh, Zeke and Nesta I think it was I'd go and do classes because the money I earned from tearing tickets meant that I could pay for a class mm. so I was interested in that uh, plus the school all the school stuff I was in then the so I did then I went to the Kalara Community Theatre where Judith had her her classes Little Nell, Nell Campbell, and I used to catch the train together. She'd get on at our Tarman. Her father then was a, a terrific newspaper columnist and used to write about this, his family uh, with these pseudonyms, uh, with, and Nell, Little Nell. Um, Deborah Kennedy. Um, oh, God, I can't think of it. Just come. Anyway, we did a year. We did a year of that. So we did a lot of... We learnt to not pay. Of course, we were students. But we would sit backstage. I'd sit on the book or I'd do props corner. We'd have to do a week of part of that was part of our training. So theatre was really... I could smell it. I just loved it. I mean, I've always loved it anyway mm-hmm. from a kid. The smell of it would... I, I joined people's church groups that I didn't even have any inkling whatsoever for their faith just to be in their play you know and <laughs> mum would say to my father Keith she's got some new friends we're going to Lavender Bay today on Sunday morning so I could sing in the choir or go and do their their, their. I was just keen on all of those things follow I follow all this stuff so getting back to the Clara Community Theatre and it was a year and I used to work in a bakery in the morning and so I get there very early, and that was because I also smoked cigarettes then. And my father and mother said, "No to smoking, but if you're going to smoke, we don't buy them. So you better get a job." So I had a job at the zoo, and I used to work there on weekends, and <laughs> working in the little kiosk there, loading refrigerators, so I could buy the the Peter Stuyvesant cigarettes. Oh God Almighty! Because it looked good. It was like yeah. a you know, it was like a show. Well, it was movie. sexy then, wasn't it? It was. You blow you, you out. You could be a character, and you could be you know somewhere in Europe, or you know, you know, beautiful, and lots of people fawning all over you. And it was um, what was the menthol flavor? Was it Peter Stuyvesant? Alpine. Alpine. And so you could feel like you've just cleaned your teeth. Yeah, all of that, and I know you did, except the back of your throat nearly took off. It was so hot. <laughs> but that, so I did that, and then the Kalawa Community Theatre, and then uh, I won a scholarship, which I'd had deferred. I won a Commonwealth scholarship, and that took me to NIDA. Right. So NIDA was the first of the years. We were long hair. I smoked a pipe then, a corn pipe. Oh, a oh, pipe? A pipe. I smoked a pipe. So you'd have to load it with tobacco. Yeah, and... all of that. Ugh. I had it all. But, and, of course, that lasted for years, the pipe. I had all the implements as well just to stash down the, the pipe. I thought I... just hillbillies smoked pipes. No, no, no. But Tina Burst? No, no. Get... I had a right. pink hat as well and <laughs> pipe and hair that I could sit on. <laughs> so Judith Conroe, then I went to NIDA, and uh, NIDA and I came to a bitter blow, and uh, I wasn't accepted into the second year. And that, that was the first of the years. Was there any to, reasoning why? Presumably not good enough. But at that particular time, well, obviously not good enough because I, or, or I didn't fit into their system, but I, I didn't analyse it that way. I just was 
felt totally and utterly rejected. And of that rejection, that meant for me, oh, God, I won't be a professional actor. Mm-hmm. And and also, it's just, I felt I wasn't I wasn't good. So that, Im- if you're a shy person, uh, all these, and you have insecurities, the immediately I was always bowing to these insecurities. But the other thing about that, uh, I was so keen to prove them wrong, if you like, the system. So maybe that goes back to that Leo thing you were saying about <laughs> ambitious. But mine was about proof and to validate. If I was any good, you know, I had, some, I had a voice. I wanted to do something with it. And I had great love and, for, the, for word and music and just the whole idea of working together and being a part of a community. And um, at that particular time, I also wanted to belong to Actors' Equity because in those days, if you, had, uh, if you were a member of Equity, you had an Equity card, you were then a professional and you earned professional wages. That was a really important thing to have and I wanted that so much, but I couldn't have that unless I had a job. Yeah. And curiously, one <laughs> of the first jobs, I had a couple, I went to... I don't know which came came first, but I ended up in a production of Anthony and Cleopatra at the Cremorne Orpheum. Bruce Barry played um, uh, Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony. Kerry or Anthony Mark. Anthony Mark, if you like. <laughs> Seeing I like to do that. <laughs> Kerry Maguire, Maguire Kerry. She was Cleopatra. And the director's name was John Forgem, and I can't for the life of me know why. I think he fancied me, actually, because he said I was her understudy. Well, Kerry Maguire was a really experienced actress by a few years. I was long and leggy, and I think all he wanted to do was see my legs. So I ended up as Charmian in a lap lap, (laughs) a very unusual see-through pleated lap lap. And... um, I don't know what to say really about that, but I was in that production and it sort of... Anyway, it got me a card. Right. So that legitimised me and... Um, That's the, the difficult thing, isn't it, getting the equity card? You, you can't get one unless you work professionally, but you can't work professionally unless you've got an equity but card. That was the great thing because right. that you worked hard for that. Yeah. And also it had great value. And um, that, that, was, that was your badge, you, you, you're accepted. So being rejected by NIDA and then um, then going in and doing a show, getting that, and then I travelled through schools through a pageant theatre company, which was a, a modern take of the school syllabus, putting music to poetry. Mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot was in mm-hmm. the company I was with. They were the poems of the, the time. And, of course, that was the greatest joy was travelling rural Australia in uh, a bus, pulling out drum kits, guitars, and we had to play everything and do everything. And these kids in, you know, Walgett, um, people would just run around that bus with thrill and excitement. And the power of English for them was something that was tangible because it was music and um, people enjoying themselves through English. So it was a, a um, a great job and a great thing to do actually. This is great for, for the young wannabe actor listening to all of this Tina because uh, you know you've had such success for, for 50 years but you know you've you've done your dues you know travelling in a bus and putting on theatre, being rejected from NIDA um, there that, was are, a, that was a big that was a crush, that was quite a crush for a very long time you know, for me. Many mentally. pathways are you still pissed off that NIDA? No, 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 no. Because you proved them wrong. 
That's right. Uh, well, not you can never say something is wrong about that. Yeah. I obviously needed to find a path, and all along, because we as human beings, as recent as the times we're in now, we respond well to structure and order. We just do. And so NIDA, being a pres- the only in the prestigious mm. drama school, gave me, I wanted to have that, that on my CV, that I was a graduate, like all the other, what, you know, what we thought of, I thought to be great actors. But, you know, um, I've always said to people, you know, you don't have to have that. You, you train on your job, you know. My father was an engineer. He used to say, I'll give the man the, the job. You, you put the tool in his hand. It's not about a degree. It's mm. about the application. Mm. Gordon Chater. Oh, my darling. Oh. I've done some homework. I loved him. Um, in his autobiography, he says... During a holiday in Queensland, I saw a review at the Twelfth Night Theatre. At intermission, I bought a program and discovered the name of the male performer, Ken Lord. I also discovered from the program that the roles played by what I thought were a number of actresses were in fact all played by Tina Bursell. When Royce Foster from the Chevron Hotel was scheduling the scandals of 74 for the hotel, I told him about Tina, and after a breathtakingly versatile audition, she was cast. Oh, God, love him. Thank you for reading that. That's such a lovely thing. I loved, yes, I had such a fun time with the Lords doing the Great Banana Split, as it was known. And so that was a review at the Twelfth Night? That was at the yeah. Twelfth Night. I did multiple characters. I, I, that's, that's how it all began, multiple characters in review. And I was doing other people's material, even though I would contribute. And so for Gordon, and I also have to add Dave Allen and Benny Hill... So I worked on Dave Allen shows as well. On TV or? On TV, absolutely on TV. And Benny and I became friends for years. He was always trying to get me to go to London. But I said, I don't want to be a tit girl. (laughs) I don't want to be running around going. (laughs) (laughs) And I I loved him and he was a really beautiful man, a wonderful man and a very, very bright man. And we remained friends for years. But so did Gordy and I. He was... He taught me so much. He also made me laugh. He made, I was so naughty with him because he let me be naughty. I mean, he was the one with the he, he, a whoopee cushion, you know, He would because he loved fart jokes. And, you know, when you're 25, 26, um, you know, he would always say, you know, to me, well, stuff that I would just fall out laughing. And he loved testing me on stage. He would always try and make me go up. And I always knew from my days of, you know, getting fined on stage of laughing and being naughty don't give in don't crease don't give in but I I never I never could sustain that until the point that I was doing and making jokes on him and one day uh, I should say I should say first of all he he gave me a great sense of um, respect and regard for theatre life and what it was and where and just for a tiny example but when I came to work one day after I'd been in the house all day, I was painting, I was scrubbing and doing painting, and I rocked up the back door and I was in, I had a shirt on and pair of jeans because I was always so glamorous in these other roles. I rocked up to go to work. I was on time, I did my work up, work uh, out and everything, and he just looked, took one look at me and I thought, oh, God, what have I done? He's so proper about things. And yet we'd laugh like drains. And he said, um, when you come to the theatre, Tina, you dress. You honour and respect the craft that you do. You don't come in as if it's, you know, just a, a, a bit of a job on the side. 
have respect for your craft. And I, every day, and I still do, I'm all, I, I still dress up to go to the theatre. Well, if I can read another paragraph from his autobiography. He was about to go into rehearsal for a play, an English comedy titled uh, Jockey Club Stakes, mm. alongside Wilfred Hyde White and, and Robert Coote. He says, Tina Bursall spoke to me about the girls' part in it. I knew she would have, have to be interviewed by Wilfred and Robert, and I said to her that if she dressed the part for the interview, she'd get in. In other words, she should look like an actress. Fresh hairdo, manicure, best poochie, gucci, woochie clothes, <laughs> handbag, gloves and stockings. I was asked to attend the interviews or the auditions, maybe as an interpreter. Uh, one young actress after another sat in front of us for a chat, one would have thought they were competing for the least washed and shabbiest look. <laughs> Wilfred and Robert were impeccably polite and non-committal until Tina swept in. Wilfred said in one breath, how do you do if you want the part you've got? <laughs> yes, and yeah, that's how he spoke, by the way, in one breath. Oh, how do we... And it was fabulous. Again, I learnt so much from those two. And Gordon, I said, I, I don't know how to save my money. Will you take my bank account with me? He said, I can't save darling he said with the word shit together but so yes it was and of course Wilfred I mean what an extraordinary man he always felt the cold so he had about 15 buddy overcoats on but he'd go rambling on the stage so I'd be sitting there in those beautiful outfits they created for me and um, he thought I was dry too they both they thought I was a very funny funny girl I, I wouldn't have known that but that's very funny very funny and They'd go down the bottom of the stage. He'd wander down in the middle of a huge speech. We'd all be waiting for the cue. And he'd go off. He'd have a riff and he'd wander down to the stage and say, oh, I think it's very hot in here. I've got maybe another, maybe I need to take my coat off. We'd be hanging on every word because he could do that. And he'd do it so well and he'd come back and swoof just like that. He'd give you the cue. Bobby Coote. Very a stickler, very funny guy. I remember one at the Princess, we had a, a storm, deluge of rain, massive rainstorm, and I couldn't hear my cue. I was on the other side of that door. So much so that I had my ear on the door, my hand on the handle, desperately trying to hear to go in because if I was late... Um, Robbie, he would, they'd always pull you up, and Wilfred particularly, he'd be scathing. This is a man that had a wife that was about 40 years younger than him and a 14-year-old daughter, and he was 80, if not 90, at that time. And don't know why I said that, but I did. Anyway, I've got my hand on the door, and I'm listening, I'm listening. I'm now thinking, I can't hear, I can't hear. And only to be pulled into the set by Bobby Coote with me on the other end of the, the door as he pulled me in. He said, oh, and there she is. And, he said, and then, <laughs> then Wilfred came over to me, and I was sitting down. And I'd also been... Curiously, out in the sun, sunbathing or whatever, obviously it wasn't raining. And I remember he came over to me and he wandered around me, looked at me and so forth. And he said, um, mm, I see you've been out in the sun. <laughs> in the middle of the play. <laughs> and you left there looking at him. And of course, I'd, it was masterful. And to have that ease on stage, to know your place and to still feed the rest of the company was an absolute education for me and was uh, wonderful. And Gordon was the same. Gordon was a stickler for that professionalism. And the other person, I might add, who uh, Gordon referred me to was Barry Creighton. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. And who is this girl, you know, who is, who is this girl? And uh, he's also a stickler. But I managed, um, I think Gordon said, told him, oh, she'll make you laugh. And uh, But I could, I was 
bit bit anxious with Barry about making him laugh because he was such a you know it was it's his moment on the stage. But I did. I saved it for the very last show. Uh, we were doing the Son of Naked Vicar then, and I saved it for the very last show. He got it. He got it back, <laughs> big time. <laughs> they all love sending me up. Do you remember what you did? Yes, uh, it was a Michael Aikens was in that scene, and it was a sketch. A, I can't remember the. It was a sketch. We were at a vet, where he was at the. He was a, a dentist, and he had his mouth open, and I can't. The tag was a, a small rubber fish or something that had that went into his mouth. It would help you if you'd heard the rest of it, but I'm obviously cutting to the chase because uh, I can't remember. But he had uh, so he had a small little fish because it was Tony uh, Sattler and um, Tony um, uh, Nolan's husband. Uh, Sattler. Sattler. Um, that had, and, and Gary Riley. And the, so whatever that was, it was about Michael in the vet and the small fish. Well, I went to the fish markets that morning. I went, well, up you, that's what I don't care. I'm buying a rainbow trout. So I kept it backstage underneath the tea towel in ice because I didn't want anybody oh, to get good. poisoned. Yes, yes. And as he, as I came out as the nurse with the fish, I handed it to Barry to give to Michael Aikens. So I scored both times then. Michael couldn't couldn't even sit on the chair and Barry was beside himself he said no one has done that to me <laughs> afterwards so I did the same with Gordon and uh, but only the once I, I, I like to you know keep it neat and tidy <laughs> oh dear uh, you did uh, that um, the Tom Lira review that's also, right. Yeah, poisoning pigeons in the park. Yes, and it was called tomfoolery, right. and that was at the Seymour Centre. And uh, I remember I loved doing that so much because I was reunited with somebody I'd admired and worked with before called Phil Scott. Oh, the great You've Phil heard Scott. of him, haven't yeah. you? Yes, that's yes, right. I've, indeed. I have too. And yes. uh, But he, he and I met years and years ago. He was just truly, I, I know he won't mind me saying this because I recount this story all the time, but he was just the piano player when we were doing this particular production there was Lex Marinos and myself Phil Roth and uh, Martin Sh- Martin Harris and uh, the Ripper show and uh, Phil was just there to play the piano and Nancy Hayes came down and gave us the choreographer choreography etc etc well by the end of that season that we'd done that production Phil now was not just the piano player he was a man with a trench coat a, a uh, uh, was very, it flasher? Uh, uh, no, well, yes, and a red nose, <laughs> a bottle in a brown paper bag, and his piano was no longer on the side of the stage. It had inched its way into <laughs> almost the centre of the stage. So I had fond, very f- another Leo, and um, shy, and uh, I had great affection for Phil, and I knew he was a genius then, and uh, I knew him outside of uh, the industry. I was just blown out by his dexterity and how he could play a piano. Anyway, we do Tom uh, Foolery, so get Tina, you know, the the girl with the, the big sing voice thing. <laughs> anyway, he's no, no, you can do it because you can act it, you see. So Linda Nagel, who had a voice to die for, uh, Beth Child, uh, who could sing, and Tony Priest and myself. Well, it was uh, uh, Tom Lira. I'm, you kind of, 
when you're young, you you know, they're all new names to you and you think, mm. oh, who's this? Who's this? Immediately I've gravitated to Tom Lehrer. I think, I love this. Yes, Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. Everything was just under the radar. But the song, one of the, the songs... The Vatican Rag. The Vatican Rag. Mm. But the song that I endeared myself to <laughs> was the Masochism Tango. And I loved it so much as I draped myself across many a ta- uh, piano or table, anything... And uh, I had legs to do it as well. Those legs just went forever. And uh, I can say that about myself because I'm always having trouble getting pants to fit. So I do masochism tango with the gorgeous Phil Scott, who man- who's probably the only penis who can follow me because I <laughs> tend to, if I hear a laugh or I respond to that audience, I'll run with it. And, of course, I, you know, the delivery of some of the things, and particularly there was one line in Masochism Tango, which I absolutely adored, with, you, you caught my nose in, um, you caught my nose in your left castanet, dear. I mean, how brilliant is that? What does that say to you? You can't, you can't, you know, just sit in it. So lots of little gems like that I thrived on and... and and I knew that's where I wanted to be with with comedy and the playing of comedy. And thereafter, you know, I did, um, I did. Then I did two thousand and one a postcode. Did you ever hear of that? No, never heard of that. That was at Kinsella's. I oh. worked at Kinsella's, oh. and they were doing shows upstairs. And the very first one was uh, the Lady Bowlers, mm. I think it was. Mm. And uh, we did that, and Nancy did the choreography for that. And I wore all Rose Jackson's frocks. Rose Jackson was Barry, who used to work at the Sydney Theatre Company, and we became friends. And because my home life, my parents' life, was uh, we had a lot of gentlemen friends. And there was a lot of Uncle Bills and a lot of uncles around for a young person like me. And my mother knew a lot of uncles uh, for when I had school uh, formals so we'd often go to Ruby's or whoever's and they would make me a fabulous frock so I always had fabulous frocks for the school dance (laughs) most people would just have that nice little thing and I had some lavish stuff that was made by whoever so my life also went into Capriccio's and so I spent a lot of time at Capriccio's I was a very heavy smoker so the voice was a lot richer than what it is now and thank God, really, because I would have done myself in, I think. And uh, so I did a lot of the, for David Mitchell and David Penfold, mm. um, I used to do a lot of the voices for the pantomimes at that Capriccio's. The, that the drag queens at, would mime. At the, that's right. Yeah. And so that was a big life for me and a very colourful life because I also went to the Purple Onion, another drag place which was down in Kensington, uh, which was kind of a bit different there, but I used to just go. And... And then my relationship over the years, I did all the Mike Walsh shows. I was on the Mike Walsh shows every week. There's a woman called Dita Cobb, Ina Harwood, and I was the young one. And Mike was very naughty with me. And I was that young person. So we had a panel and we'd always be asked questions. Views of the world. Well, Ina would have hers and Dita would have hers. Beauty and the Beast-ish. Yeah, a bit that way, before Beauty and the Beast. I did that as well. Right. And uh, so I'd, I was on that for years, and then we had a thing called Trivia, and there was another, uh, Tony Sheldon was there, and also Helen Morse, but I became Queen of Trivia. In those days, I could remember anything and everything to do with television, God knows, product of the 50s, I suppose. And so all the my friendship then with um, Rose Jackson was during her time of transitioning from Barry to Rose and so Rose became I was at, literally at her 
at her home uh, in her life during that time. And when you're in your 20s, uh, it was a very interesting time. One of acceptance, my parents, uh, my father adored Rose. And so Rose was always at our house, uh, years later, of course, um, always Christmases or any sort of, you know, celebrations. Um, was She was always there. So that was a whole, it was a very enriching time as, for me in the theatre scene, but also... It, in terms of a life journey uh, as well. Mm. I became so alerted to many things. And, of course, subsequently, uh, our, my relationship to the, um, the gay community was about entertainment. And uh, so I was part of that as well for a very long time. And, and yeah, sort of hairs on your chest. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, a preference for stage or screen? No longer. I no longer I did. I used to always try and alternate between theatre. I used to think it was good to do both because I was a theatre-trained person. But I realised the skills that I required on camera, suddenly they became challenging and worthy and I was fascinated by it, the technical side of it. But also I, I found myself exploring a truth at a very different, a different. I was still very naive um, in my acting. I, I believe I acted more more than felt, and uh, I started searching and doing. And because I knew the camera, you know, could, would not lie. It's the same as when you look into someone's eyes. The eyes literally are, to use a phrase, the windows of your soul. Mm. And so, with camera, you know, and on a fifty mil and up or twenty five up close, you're going to see what's happening. So I'm not saying that both those worlds, I think I'm probably more practised on screen than I am now with theatre because I think theatre trends have changed, which, you know, another reason why my experience at the Griffin was so wonderful. I was so... uh, it It was an opportunity. I always wanted to work on that stage. I'd done play readings but I had a love-hate relationship with it where I was absolutely fearful of its proximity to the audience and space. Had the complete opposite. I relished it. I really savoured the experience. Yes, I was terribly nervous about it, as we all were, and a new play, but I found a whole new connection to the audience. So that brought my love back to the theatre. I've never seen... uh, Theatre, for me, with the proscenium arch, unless it's a big, lavish musical, that transports me. I find it very hard to engage with a lot of productions earlier when I was probably shying a little bit away from it. And also, I hate offending people, but there's so much stuff was becoming a little more ordinary for me. Mm. And uh, I wasn't seeing or hearing uh, things that would excite me as much be it in a production or be it in just text, you know. It's funny, I was listening <clears throat> to one of your podcasts uh, earlier and it was just listening to Brian Thompson's comment about the faith healer yeah. that he uh, designed, which Judy Davis directed. That was a, a, an extraordinary production. And when listening to that interview and listening to the things that he was saying about the, the you had to feel as if that person was falling off the edge and I put it all together, and whereas for me the whole worked, but then I was listening to the parts, and uh, I found that 
I thought, of course, this is what I love about going to good theatre such as that. Mm. Uh, so film, I love it. It's it's something that will... Uh, I've had the luxury of working in a TV show for five years. If you don't learn something there, I don't know. You know, you constantly... You've got new equipment. We've got new ways of working. We're digital now. Constantly, you'll always know uh, aspects of the technique, but your task, always as any performer, I think, is you've got to let that go mm. and belong. And if you you've done enough of it, you're comfortable to be able to do that and seek just that ultimate truth uh, of in execution of that work. Mm. Um, so. I really, at the moment, who knows, after Cinderella, I might just be saying, give me more, I want to soar through this theatre. Maybe. Uh, it's, I just have a, I've returned to the love of work um, that I haven't, hadn't had for a while, and that's since both my parents have died now. All the animals have died. And it's just me, and uh, it's a it, it's it's a renaissance at the moment. I mean, mm. who'd have thought a middle-aged woman it would be, you know, unless I was in fifteen denier stockings and lace-ups. I mean, as a woman now, be it a grandmother or a mother, it's uh, it's a pretty roles are there, and it's uh, I'm very lucky to be part of it. Yeah. And certainly with television, you've moved uh, more recently, perhaps it's an age thing as well, into to those stoic matriarchs in family, whether we're talking about the Moody's or, or Dr. Doctor. Well, the beautiful thing, I adored the Moody's because... Um, and it was hysterical. It was absolutely a very hysterical. funny, wonderful sitcom. Very, very funny. And we were as tight as a drum on, on that. Everybody keeps asking, oh, were you, you know, paraphrasing? And no, everything was scripted. Everything was, every I was dotted, every T was crossed. It was a very, it was wonderful. But we rehearsed. We had the great luxury of rehearsal always which allowed us to then expand and be more playful because you you work fast but we were a tight group and I guess that I fought for a lot of that with her uh, because the boys in that production uh, both before except most beautiful producer Andy Walker um, were very they it was a boys club so you really had to you really had to fight. Robina Beard played my mum. And we really had to... I always found a spot. And I learnt then on tele, in television, in theatre, anything. Always make an offer. Always contribute to the, the whole. In that case, that way you're working together. Don't wait. If it's no good, you'll be told. Or it'll be cut out. It'll be on the floor. Always offer. Be present. And, and I think that that's... So Marie, <laughs> Marie Moody grew... In contrast to uh, Meryl Knight in Doctor Doctor, uh, the gift for me was Tony McTamara, who wrote it, or devised it alongside the producer Ian Colley. And he loves, obviously, writing for women, but women that are flawed. And it was a gift for me, really, um, on a piece of paper... And, uh, and, of course, he's gone on to great things because he penned The Favourite, that mm-hmm. wonderful film, and they're doing series two of The Great. And you only have to look at all the women uh, in in those... And I I can identify his voice in those both those, the film and the TV series. I thought, what am I... I'm hearing 
not that I want to diminish his work, but I'm hearing Merrill. I yeah. can hear the tone. And I think what he does is he he celebrates women. He seems to celebrate the flaws and allows you to explore that. You're not just uh, a matriarch who's stern. You know, I mean, my character was outrageous. Mm. And, well, I had fun with her. I think it was the great... It, so it's come at, again at a really good time in my life to have explored that and had fun with her um, and to be part of uh, literally a family of a 100 people on it per series that's a lot of people and you know everyone and you're all there to support each other at on a day's work tell me about a writer like david williamson because oh. you originated uh, roles in three of his plays i think I did. Uh, up for grabs flatfoot and top silk that's right uh, top silk was the first and uh, top silk was with uh, rodney fisher's version and then through um after the late harry kipax's uh, review that wasn't favoring for david because david it was kipax was re- resigning at all putting down his pen at that particular time and so there was a clash and David's was of course the character my character just lost her name then but her she was really one of the first of his women that was actually going to be a a main player and which was a terrific gift to have again and and I got that from um, Rough Crossing. He came to see, he and Rodney came to see me in that play, and it was Bob Ellis that actually said, go and have a look at that Sheila up on that stage. He never thought he'd speak Comrade. like that, but he did. Yeah, that's it. And and it was that, that they came to see us in in, um, in that at the Playhouse, I think it was, yes. And um, the lovely Dennis Olsen and the gorgeous and beautiful um, Ronnie Falk. Um, that was a lesson to watch how to do comedy at another level, uh, the expertise. Um, so, yes, I went into Top Silk and it, it was a controversial job. Wonderful for me to play. Great, a- great actors. Really challenged me because I never left the stage. I literally would pivot to change to get back. I was just standing on a just a moving door. Playing a barrister, weren't you? I was, yeah. uh, and um, and also, um, yeah, she was playing a barrister. But it was we he, politically he covered his tracks in that play. He was wanting to make a stand, uh, a comment on media ownership, and. Uh, also, I think he softened it because the woman was taking the softer approach of... Uh, I just can't think. What was the, the name of... I um, can't think of the name. Uh, it wasn't pro bono, but uh, her work, she was basically battling to get give someone a chance and an opportunity. So there was battles in there, and there was also his classic f- uh, family structure and the conflict that goes on there. But... For whatever reasons, and I don't need to really explore all of this now, but there was controversy around it when Harry Kipax did not warm to that production. And so midway, within days of that review, we then had another director, which was Graham Blundell. So we were doing the A version of the show at night and the B version we were rehearsing during the day because Rodney had moved on to go and do the play, which was opening the new Sydney Theatre Company, uh, um, Rain. I can't think of the name of that either right now. Um, Anyway, so it was a really tough time, a really tough time. It it 
almost turned me off theatre for life. I found it really challenging because it was about... Summer rain. Summer rain, thank you. It was about someone's integrity. It wasn't... And we, the performers, I felt we were kind of the pawns in that. But we did our job and we maintained it and we did it. I travelled and toured with that. I was... Uh, I was always uh, dealing with illnesses. I never left the stage, and I think all of that emotional baggage. But having said that, and then years later when I came back to do Up for Grabs and Flatfoot, Up for Grabs, uh, which, a, which was a delicious role, but before, David's work fits really well for me. I find his, his plays and his earlier plays... And all the readings that I've done, uh, I've done a lot of uh, anything to, to learn, to pick up books and sit and do them, the independent, anything. I just want to know more how, how much more I can do. And um, I think with, uh, with David's stuff, it just, once you can get your head around and hook into the grammar, the way he writes, which is a little bit like Tony McNamara, there's a way, there's a, the way it's written, if you understand the breath... Not the punctuation, because invariably it's not punctuated. It'll be, it's a thought. And if you can achieve that, it's just like scaffolding. And everything's built on that. And you will reach the comedic payoff at the end of that. So his stuff always sat well in me. It always has. And uh, challenging, because it's so wordy. He writes as people speak. And uh, and as, as I said, but there's there's merit in it, and it's a great challenge and exercise. So he, he constructs beautifully, and the same with Tony. Tony's grammar, you you skew as you're trying to get around it. And once you grab it, and that's what I had with Meryl Knight. Once I could sink into it, I was there always. It's just it was hard to learn lines every night, you know, and I'd be in every scene for the rest of the days on end but but wonderful things they're they're beautiful building blocks and they're great craftsmen in that regard they really are and so up for grabs was a time to come together for me to meet back with David because we had a falling out well the falling out was through by design with other people and we as actors were in the middle of that and I really lost my my nerve to go back on theatre because I felt it was my fault the actors felt it was their fault, and um, that's what was so uh, disheartening in lots of ways. So I've always had a little bit of a little niggle of, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't want to have that again. Uh, yeah. That you, you know, if in fact it was the actors' fault, which it wasn't. I don't. We we did what was given to us, and we made it work as best we could. Mm. So when we did up for grabs, which was also another controversial piece because it you know involved a very large dildo, and uh, in which I saw I saw the production in London with Madonna. With Madonna. Oh, that was just terrible. Was it? it was not good. <laughs> she had bodyguards in the front, right along the foot of the stage, oh, no. with walkie-talkies. And I bought a seat uh, when I, I managed to get a seat. And I, oh, my God. And, of course, I felt that the the woman who, Dawn Gray, which was a classic role, uh, and we made it. I mean, I, I really thank Gail Edwards for that. Gail Edwards uh, gave me the opportunity. I took so long to find that character. And uh, she virtually groomed me into it physically. But 
I took so long to get there. And then I, I found it one night, literally at home, I was running through my lines. I knew I was, I just wasn't landing. And then I found something and I went, I'm going to take that to work. And I worked, I worked backwards with Dawn Gray. I had to start at the end of the play to find her at the beginning. And it was, she allowed me to do that. And once I, it happened and it just, she came out. So that was David's work again. And I'll never forget um, this long stuff. Gary MacDonald. Oh, I just adore Gary because he was also, both of us, he used to think I was very funny. And uh, not, it's not funny ha-ha. I think it's just in the, in the material that's yeah. there in the um, application. And uh, I remember my speech, my opening speech. We were on a revolve, a square revolve at the drama theatre. And it was working like clockwork. I knew that I had to do get on at the point, a right angle, and I had, as it came round, I had 14 steps and I had to put the left foot on the revolve to get to the point where we where it would stop. And I'd be... Uh, all the previews, I had a mattress there underneath because I was in a pin spot. I can't tell you how dry my mouth was and uh, the fear of walking out there. And that foot had to land on that thing at that time. So I'd get out there and then the spot and then deliver as this dawn grey. I dropped the bloody stitch, as I called it. I dropped a Williamson stitch. And to me, it felt like an eternity. I thought, months have gone by. I don't know what to say next. And apparently, Gary MacDonald, who was in the drama theatre in the dressing room, ran down four flights of stairs to the box, to the side. She, she stopped, she stopped, she stopped. And I just, in some divine intervention, the presence of mind, I just stopped. And I, I know I said as Dawn Gray, I think I might start that again. <laughs> and proceeded but it haunted me thereafter for the rest of the season one hitting the point uh, you know the the right angle the foot on the left foot it had to be the left and I'm right I'm right-handed right-footed so on the left and then I would I had to get to that particular point to hit that stop and then that spot so yes it was um but a thrilling experience and uh, I loved that character so enormous gratitude to both David and Gail Edwards for supporting me or choosing me to do that it was uh, it was great right. Did you have a good time on the inside Well not after I'd missed that bloody drop that bloody stitch, as I oh, call no, it. Oh, you, no, I'm oh, talking the about Wentworth oh, Detention right. Centre. Oh, well, I was going to say, no, I was... Sonia, <laughs> did I have a good time? Sonia Stevens. Look, it, you end up being top dog. I did, and that was absolutely fraught because it was a time... Uh, and, of course, I've just made a revisit into Wentworth, which yeah, is yet course, to go yeah, on. Yeah, lovely uh, bookend. Very nice bookend. Is it the same character? No, no. no. Eve, uh, Eve's very different. It was lovely because the I knew from Michael Adato that n- no character from the previous production of Prisoner would ever be repeated by any of the actors. They always had guests, so I was a, a, a kind of a. Was, were, you, were you an inmate? I came in, went in as an inmate, but right. Sigrid Thornton ended up playing Sonia Stevens right. in Wentworth. Um, it was just interesting that I was allowed to go. I, I went back in, but. On the inside in those days, well, we, every actress I knew wanted to be in that show because, dare I say, in the 80s, it was... And I was the glamour queen then in Skyways and winner-take-all on the ABC. I was full glamour. Suddenly it was like, oh, my 
I might be taken for real now. This is going to be serious acting because no one was allowed to wear makeup. No, nothing. And we all got our lashes dyed <laughs> so that we look good. And in my case, I got a fringe cut so I could have good eyes. But um, strange thing to say, vanity, but, you know, a lot of it in those days. The, it was a tough ride. I'll be honest with you, it was really tough. The women had been going for a while. They had their own hierarchy. The conditions we worked in at that time, we were literally in a Besser Block green room in the centre of a very old cavernous studio. No fresh air. We relied on external air forces, be it for heating or an air conditioner. There was a ritual it really was. I was very aware of it because I'd come from another world of glamour and openness and I was very aware of just dynamics with one particular person there. There was a dynamic and I was a bit over. I wasn't the kind of girl to sit down and talk about food, uh, like cake recipes and things. It just wasn't my thing. And, you know, I was a hard player. You know, I smoked cigarettes and drank. Not So I connected really well with Maggie. I loved Maggie because we were both theatre people in Kirkpatrick, those days, yeah. Kirkpatrick. We also had a lot of stuff to do together so we could work off it, each other and feel comfortable. And so I decided during that particular time, and I'm only answering it in this way because you've asked me what it was like on the inside, mm. I chose to give up smoking then and get healthy so, <laughs> so I wouldn't be in that green room at lunchtime. <laughs> We'd, so it was a very, in contrast to the girls in Wentworth who were just like fam, they were so welcoming. And we, we worked in the hardest of times last year during COVID. But everybody was, they all have, you know, were just so welcoming and warm for me to come into the show. Mm. But Prisoner was another stepping stone and it was incredibly important. It was a story about incarcerating women. In You know, we needed that. I visited many jails and extraordinary lives for women and there was not a story being told. Mm. And it needed to be out there. Um, yes, it needed to be out there. And terrific work for a terrific number of great actors. All of us went through there, and I honestly believe it was the 80s, and the 80s were shoulder pads, and they were power women, and we were externally power, powerhouses. But in something such as that, it wasn't a period drama, it was raw, and it was about women, literally, having to to be, uh, having been incarcerated, but also to have some sort of uh, moral compass within the structure of mm. something that was, uh, you know, dog eat dog. And you were one of few that could make denim and a lemon shirt look so fantastic. You yeah. Oh my god! I don't know how that <laughs> happened, actually, but thank you, mind you. That hair of mine, that hair, that That's mane great. of mine was so straight and so. Uh, I look. It's like a helmet. Um, that may have had something to do with it. Anyway, with the plethora of, of television product that you've done. Um, over the decades, that must be a lot of nights at the Logies. Surely you've got a Logie story. I have. I have. Oh, <laughs> well, I have a Logie story. There's probably I may have many Logie stories, but just one that most recently, because of the Doctor Doctor thing, and also the advent of more clothes and more glamour. I've told you. I mean, I. I oh, I did have a story when I was in doing Skyways and um, that particular story is that this particular was the very first year I'd ever been. The late Bill Stalker, who was in our show, um, I was then going out with a very glamorous man and uh, 
a fantastic designer called Clarence Chai who was in Collins Street because in those days everything would just arrive in, in the studio. You literally were a coat hanger and you have the silks and the various things and I'd just put them on and then they'd be going back at the end of the week or whatever. We didn't have clothes made for us then. Or well, you did, but more in theatre or review sort of stuff. And uh, so this particular year I went to Clarence. I said, Clarence, I want something really elegant. I'm 28 28 years old I want something elegant I'm as brown as a berry long and leggy long hair but I want to look elegant you know my parents always said you know always be classy always look elegant don't show it all you know leave them guessing I went oh, okay right he goes the bikini <laughs> so I have this outfit he did a beautiful gown uh, it was just a short and it was all hand painted but I wanted to wear a coat and he said oh I don't know about that and I said just coat anyway I'd, I had some creation in my mind and I basically said can you make this happen I wanted to wear a pink feathered coat I thought it would look beautiful and I knew it would make a mark but I just wanted to wear it so endless endless rolls and rolls and rolls of pink feathers and he made the coat it was extraordinary the size it was enormous I've got very small features I looked quite small in it it was so big <laughs> and coincidentally that year as I step out of a very beautiful white Rolls Royce I stepped out and of course <gasps> the gasp and, and of course the next car that just arrived next to me that was the year that that very large Big Bird was coming out from America to you know to be a host of the Logies. So I'm now on the red carpet, and who gave a shit? Quite frankly, <laughs> everybody. The cameras all went to Big Bird, taller than me, yellow, very yellow and big, and that was the end of my big pink coat. You're upstaged by a muppet. I, well, yeah, that's right, a muppet <laughs> that didn't speak. You know. So, but the the more recent, the more recent one, which is probably less savoury, but um, you know, the advent of Spanx and women always want everybody has to look fabulous in the Spanx. I went, I don't do that. I don't. I just don't do that sort of thing. Yes, all right, I'll surrender. I have to have this. I have to have that. So, yes, I basically I'll just I'll just keep it nice and sweet. I had a full Spanx on, and I went to the toilet in the five seconds that you've got to leave, because if the door's shut, you can't get back in because they're televising. I was presenting, and I went to the toilet. Well, there was no way in the world I could go to that toilet, so I had to then ask somebody to come into the cubicle with me to lift my dress, to pull down the Spanx, (laughs) so I could do a wee. By this stage, I've now wet everybody and not myself, and uh, I missed everything. But anyway, there you go. The, the story of drama and glamour. There, I like a bit of drama. You're as funny off the stage as you are on the stage. I wish I'd seen you in review because we have a mutual friend who describes you as being like Lucille Ball. You were so funny. God, who was that? Suit, suit yourself. <laughs> Well, my father was the one who always said, you're a loser, your ball. When are you going to get back to comedy? I don't know why you're doing all this serious stuff. Why do you want to do serious stuff? So I guess what I, you know, it's really interesting at this point in time. I'm actually doing comedy now. I've come, I'm I'm working in a comedy right now. My character, Meryl Knight, was comedic. And I'm about to do comedy with Cinderella. I think I'm going to do comedy with Cinderella. <laughs> but it's maybe it's come back, you know, because the vehicles are there. And uh, maybe I know I can be serious. I'm deathly serious. I can be so serious I bore myself. But maybe that's what's happened. It's come around, back again, you know. You'll get some nice costumes in Cinderella. 
I believe. I can't. I've not seen any. I want to know if any I'm wearing... Any designs yet. Yeah. Mm. Oh, the st- uh, Madame, the stepmother. I mean, that just says it all. She has to have a feather in it because in one of the songs, there's a feather in her head. So I'm sure I'm going to have a feather somewhere. <laughs> Heaven help anybody near me with a feather in it. Is she the villain? Well, she's a madam. I think in this version, or in this particular uh, twist of Cinderella, um, I asked the director, actually, I said, well, how far can I go? I mean, the the stepmother is the wicked stepmother. She's most unkind. How far can I go with this, (laughs) relishing every minute of it? Oh, he said, oh, he actually answered in such a lovely way. He said, if it's truth-based, you can go as far as you like, you know. I mean, I'm not saying he said I could. He just said, well, truth. Truth is it doesn't matter how far you, you're, you're there as long as it's truth-based. Um, so I guess with, with um, Madame, and I kind of want to give her a name. I'll have to have a little secret name, but she's called the Ma- Madame or Madame. Madame. Oh, so there's no name? I haven't got Madame. a name. Right. I mean, I, what do I think? She Joyce. Call it Carol or Carol. something. Or something. <laughs> something. Madame Carol's arrived. <laughs> but she, the most important thing is about this is that she's got two daughters of her own and she's got a stepdaughter. And clearly the stepdaughter is, is, is a... Is, not of her doing, not of her making. And, uh, you know, she's, she points bows and arrows at that poor girl and she wants to see her daughters, uh, her own daughters, to reach heights, good heights. I think there's a, a fantastic line in there that she says that she's um, teetering uh, between... Uh, uh, teetering between upper... Oh, what is it? Upper... Teetering between upper class... And lower upper class. <laughs> and I thought, well, that kind of says everything about her, really. Meaning she has aspirations for, well, I've always said it was for her daughters, but I think for herself. And you've got some great colleagues yes. on board. Well, I'm new to all the young ones, but yes. by goodness. But Todd McKenney, who I think has done more yeah. musicals than it's, Methuselah. He could do my role as well, probably. <laughs> He'll probably be there. I'm looking forward to being with uh, with Todd. Sylvie Palladino. Yes, she's gorgeous. Ainsley yeah. Mellon. Well, I've just met, and uh, Shubhshree. Oh, just Candia. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. She's so be beautiful. elegant Cinderella. Oh, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen the photos? Yeah, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Oh, there's one at the State Theatre where she's just got, the, the photographer's just captured the, the, the foot at and the back of the dress. And she's looking over her shoulder? Oh, or? it's yeah. just yeah. breathtaking. Mm. I think she's a, she comes across as a really nice person too. Do you have an opening night ritual? Something, a routine that you go through? Do you have a rabbit's foot or do you just vomit? (laughs) I wee a lot. (laughs) And I have a very dry mouth usually. (laughs) Very dry mouth. Well, that's no good in a musical. No, anyway, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. (sighs) I've got another little thing to do before all of that, so I've got to concentrate. The deck, mobile or echo deck. No, I'm actually in the process. I'm working on another TV show, which is in Melbourne, and clearly I'm not, so we'll just see how that all manifests. Yes, I've just been doing Zoom, Zoom meetings and readings and rehearsals on Zoom. Oh, this is one that's about to go into production? They're in production. They just started last Thursday. There's no stopping you, Tina Bursal. Mm. 70. 50 years in the industry. Oh. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Um, you've been on my wish list from day one of this podcast, so... Um, have I? Um, yeah, yeah. How long has it been Absolutely. for you? This is the fourth year. Really? Yeah. But you've been doctor-doctoring and freezing and mudgy. And yes, but I haven't really been that's... probably theatre for you. Do you? Oh, there you oh no, I do no. all sorts. Anyone who connects with an audience. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, I've you loved them. You certainly do. Do you think? Mm. Right. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> Happy birthday, Miss Bursell. Thank you. Thank you so much. Did you bring a candle? Um, I've got to find a match. <laughs> Well, as you can tell, we had a bundle of fun recording that episode. Tina is absolute joy. And aren't we lucky to have her back on stage after five glorious seasons of television's Doctor Doctor? Tina plays Madame alongside Todd McKenney, Ainsley Malham, Sylvie Palladino and Shrubshree Kandia in the Opera Australia and John Frost for Crossroads Live production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Cinderella plays the Capitol Theatre in Sydney, opening in November. It's a beautiful production and a glorious score. And featuring my guest today, the glorious Tina Bursell. Happy birthday, Tina. Thanks for joining us in this episode, everyone. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. And don't forget to follow on our socials, Facebook and Instagram. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>